Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneur First podcast. I'm Matt Clifford, one of EF's co-founders, and I'm your host for this episode. At Entrepreneur First, we invest in individuals before they have a company or even a team. What we see in founders at that stage is the raw ambition to build a globally important technology company. Our job is to help them make that a reality, all the way from finding a co-founder and developing an idea right through to seed funding. Today, we talk about space. In the middle of the last century, images of rocket launches and people walking on the moon were symbols of humanity's technological prowess. But then, for many decades, progress stagnated and the space industry became a slow-moving and expensive one. Today, that's changing fast. The founders we'll speak to on today's episode are building companies that can fulfill space missions based on nanosatellite platforms and enable global high-speed internet via satellites. They're building tools and platforms that will make access to space cheaper and faster. And so they're part of a small group of entrepreneurs turning this industry on its head and ushering in a new golden age of space. My first guest today is Rafael Jorda Sikier, co-founder and CEO of Open Cosmos. He holds a master's degree in aerospace engineering with a space technology specialization. Before he started Open Cosmos, he worked for Airbus. Before that, he was part of a disruptive startup in the field of space technologies and launches. I'm also joined by Rohit Jha, co-founder and CEO of Transcelestial, a startup building light-speed communications infrastructure for the next 100 years. He graduated with a degree in electrical and electronic engineering from Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. And after that, he worked for four years at RBS in their FX electronic markets team, where he was the youngest associate in the company's Asia-Pacific history. The three of us talked in this episode about the state of the space industry in 2021, Raf and Rohit's understanding of why they're so suited to entrepreneurship, and life as the CEO of a company on the cutting edge of technology. Finally, my guests give us their advice for people who want to become entrepreneurs themselves. Let's get into it. Rafael and Rohit are running two extremely exciting companies. I'm lucky enough to have seen them grow from their very early days into organizations that are shaping the skies above our heads. I asked the two of them for an update on what their companies are doing right now. So actually a couple of months ago, uh, we launched uh, two satellites to orbit for two different customers. And uh, these were satellites that we entirely designed, manufactured, tested in our facilities in, in Harwell and that uh, now are up there providing already IoT connectivity to customers all around the globe. So uh, we're really proud and, and happy that everything has gone so smoothly. That's an amazing thought that they're, they're out there um, entirely because of the work that you and your team have done. Uh, that's, that's, that's awesome. Uh, Rohit, what about you? What's something pretty tangible that uh, Transcelestial has um, been able to do recently? Yeah, I mean, around the uh, middle of last year, we kind of uh, finally closed our Series A and that gave us the chance to kind of ramp up manufacturing and build uh, products which would bring, uh, which uses like our laser technology to bring internet connectivity. And until recently, it's kind of difficult to measure what's the end user impact because we work with a lot of telcos and stuff. Uh, but once we talked to a lot of our customers and backtracked some of the numbers and actually only recently we realized that all the uh, products that we have sent out in the field so far, uh, we have been able to connect uh, roughly 33,000 homes with a broadband level connectivity. 
Um, <laughs> and that that's just a very staggering number uh, once we once we saw it appear. When I'm talking to investors, I often use Transcelestial as an example of a company that sounded like science fiction when it got going and now is very real. If you'd said five years ago that tens of thousands of real people would be getting their internet through space lasers in 2021, it would sound kind of crazy. Meeting people setting out to take on these sorts of challenges is one of my favorite things about working at Entrepreneur First, because you have to be a fascinating person, an extraordinary person to take on something like that. I asked Raf what it was that took him down that path. Well, I want, I want to sort of um, get back um, in, in a few minutes to, to your companies and how they work and why there's such an opportunity um, in, in space today. But of course, um, at Entrepreneur First, we're, we're talent investors. And one of the um, things that I'm most proud of is that in, in both your cases, we, we got to know you right at the start of, of, of your entrepreneurial journey and before we really knew exactly what um, what your companies would would be, so maybe to sort of track that story a bit, um, and again maybe starting with you, Raf, can, can you tell us like how did you come to think that entrepreneurship was the was the path for you? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I wouldn't be able to say a, a specific moment, to be honest. Uh, I think that when we got the first contract for for the satellite, a couple of months after incorporating the company, I realized that I was doing something well. And at the team, we were, we were doing something right. But uh, we have always been more obsessed with, with, with solving the problems for, for our customers rather than whether that should be through an entrepreneurship journey or, or through another endeavor. So uh, to, to be very honest, I think that when I was at, at Airbus, I realized that there was like an opportunity to, to start uh, building small satellites and provide services out of them. And that the companies that were at that moment able of, of doing that, the, the big uh, contractors weren't putting enough attention into it. And it was a path that they weren't looking uh, to, to explore. And uh, yeah, I thought, well, if they don't want to do it, I really think that there is a need here. And the consequences was that I do need to start a company to, to try to solve this problem. And it was not like I had always been wanting to be an entrepreneur. It was more okay, there is a demand, there is a need, and I really need to try to find a solution to this. And so how had you kind of got into that position in the first place? Like, did you did you always know that space was the area you wanted to work in? Uh, well, what I saw is that the space was fundamental, and space technology particularly was fundamental to gather global data sets and, and also provide global connectivity. And those were... I believe and still are some of the biggest challenges that we have, right? Being able to understand how Earth works, uh, being able to optimize and digitalize multiple industries. And uh, I can't conceive a, a, a world that does not have that information. Uh, the, the, the best way actually to gather that information is from space infrastructure. And uh, since I had the knowledge and the network to, to start a company uh, that was capable of, of of providing that sort of, of of capabilities and of information. I kind of felt that I was in, in the obligation of of contributing this and and to try to solve this this problem. Uh, so yeah, rather rather than just trying to figure out uh, from a technology if I was wanted to work in, in the space technology or or using one technology or another, it was more out of the drive of trying to solve the, this problem that I ended up actually doing all of the, the company in the space sector. 
Obsessional problem solving is a characteristic we see a lot at Entrepreneur First, and Raph certainly fits into that category. Being unwilling to let things go until they're working as they should be seems to me an important psychological driver for many of our founders. Rohit told me that he too believes that entrepreneurship springs from his core personality traits. It kind of narrows down to uh, one single element, which is basically at the core, uh, just being extremely uncomfortable with the status quo. I think it's been seeded throughout my life and it's not like a singular aha moment as such. Um, so I, I grew up in a city in India, which was the city of the Tatas. So um, that's the place where the Tata group was formed and it is what it is right now. Uh, and I grew up with role models uh, like Jamshed Chitala and J.R.D. Tata, who were just incredible industrialists, incredible legacy hardware uh, passion for hardware, passion for innovation and stuff. Uh, but until I came to uni, uh, I, I I couldn't arrange all of these things in, in a term called entrepreneurship. And I, and I went through uh, a, a minor in entrepreneurship, and I was like, ah, so this is what this is what it it's known as. Uh, um, but I think after, yeah, so right. that's kind of interesting. But I think it kind of sticks to you the uncomfortable being uncomfortable with the status quo. Uh, and while I was I spent four years in banking after university, but I mean, when I look back at it's like my actual work was like looking at pricing uh, for for F- emerging FX market currencies, but that was uh, a portion of what I did. Most of the stuff was around suggesting blockchain internally, onboarding, uh, revamp. So bringing our customer onboarding from six months to like two weeks using fully automated pipelines customer-facing algo trading platforms, which is now RBS is one of the biggest uh, B2B platform called Agile Markets, uh, but all of that stuff. So it, it's always like nagging at me to like start something. Um, and I think the trigger, uh, I, w- I wouldn't say trigger, but the trigger for space uh, definitely was, uh, I think in this part of the world, Elon is, was not Elon uh, until very recently. But uh, I, I kind of came across uh, him and, and the work being done in SpaceX uh, as part of this, uh, another community called Founders Institute. Uh, so they were having some kind of dinner and I went and joined and I met this guy called Eddie Oresi, uh, who was uh, housemates with Elon uh, in the early days. And he was talking about all the stuff SpaceX is doing, went and looked them up. Um, I'd also been a big fan of Armadillo Aerospace and what John Carmack and the whole XPRIZE Foundation. So yeah, I think, I think that... Uh, kind of pushed me towards space a lot more. And of course, there were lots, everyone has grown up reading science fiction and stuff, right? So you get a chance to work on stuff, which is the frontier for every single item. It's like it's like being part of shipbuilding uh, in the 1700s, right? I would love to talk briefly about your your own journey through EF. Um, you know, you, um, Raf, you obviously were in our London program, Rohit in Singapore. Maybe back to you first, Rohit. Um, tell us a little bit about um, kind of when you joined EF, you, you obviously met your co-founder Dinesh at EF. What, what was that like? How did you know that you wanted to work with him? Yeah, great question, Matt. Um, so I met Dinesh uh, on the very first day of the EF program. Uh, and at that point of time, uh, so I, my background is software engineering, and I literally walked up to the head of the program, uh, who was Alex, and asked him, that were there any physicists in the room, right? Like, because all, all I had been talking to people who are like software engineers. Uh, and 
the idea about using lasers for the propulsion and communication uh, required of an interest in the team. And uh, so Alex basically said, yeah, there's, there's this guy called Dinesh, just go talk to him. He's a PhD in uh, quantum mechanics and stuff. So I was like, sure. And uh, went and talked to Dinesh. And this was literally a few hours into the program. And we started discussing about like deep space and what are the issues and how do you communicate long distance and how do you use how you can use light to propel long distances. And that conversation was so interesting and exciting. We pretty much missed the rest of the day's sessions. It's been four years in since then, right? Like um, that's that's how we met, and we kept working on the idea. It just kept getting interesting and interesting over time. And at some point of time, we were like, "Yep, that's we want to make a company out of this." Brass story is a little different, and it shows us that for would-be entrepreneurs, the person you need to meet isn't always the person you think you need to meet. Yeah, so actually, funny enough, uh, I also got to know Yef from a very close friend who had been on a previous Yef court. Uh, and he was the one that introduced me to to, to EF. And at that time, we were I, I had just incorporated the Open Cosmos, and we were just starting to provide some electronics to the European Space Agency for for educational purposes. Uh, and and I was doing it alone, and I was quite it was very tough and very lonely actually to go through that. Um, and um, EF actually uh, introduced me to to Han who uh, was absolutely key to, to the developments and the growth of the company to date. And um, the, the key thing here is that I, I, I thought that I needed people who had also the space background, who understood the industry. And uh, when I met Han, I realized that actually I, I, I rather needed the opposite, someone that was totally complementary to me, that had a domain of expertise that was not necessarily space, in his case was uh, electronics and um, very advanced electronics. His his family had a business also in the field that had helped him actually gain a lot of experience and knowledge on on how to manage these kind of, of hardware developments. Um, and and then another key thing that happened at EF is that it, it was not only about finding someone to join you in the journey. It was also about all the support and the network and 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 the environment that it created. I think that that was one of the most important things to me. Um, because when I, when I arrived at EF, um, many of the companies in the cohort back in those days were working on AI and software and algorithms, and you could see their product developing so quickly with iterations every week when there was like the, the recap on, on what, what, what had happened and what the iterations had been, they all came up with a new version of the product where as we were developing electronics for satellites and that took a bit longer, but it still stimulated us to try to go as fast as them. And that environment of support, of ambition and of a speed really, really permeated in us. And I think allowed us actually to achieve some important milestones uh, much farther, much faster than any other space company had, had achieved before. Today, space is in the public consciousness in a way that it hasn't been for many decades. What's new now, though, is that it's private companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, and Virgin Galactic, rather than governments, that are driving innovation forward. I wanted to know what that means for people working in that sector and how it's changing. Obviously, you know, this is, this is a sector that you're both in. It's a sector we're excited about. Um, maybe back to you again, Raf. Like, what, what are the... Um, like, why is this suddenly? Maybe you'll maybe you'll dispute the premise of the question, which is fine. But like, why is this suddenly in the last sort of ten years taken off? What what were the enabling factors that mean there's a big opportunity today to to build startups in um, that, that work yeah. in space? 
Yeah, there's been a, a, a change of paradigm or a change of mindset. I mean, traditionally, space has has always been rather slow with with product development cycles of several years, uh, very expensive. So, uh, uh, and and traditionally, it has also been quite complex. You you needed to know a lot about the complex technology, making it work in a rough environment, as it is a space and so on. So the mindset for the traditional industry has always been test a lot, put redundancy, take your time to check things because these are very expensive satellites, sometimes of several hundreds of, of millions. And uh, that changed during the last decade. Uh, the approach has turned into, okay, let me, let's make those satellites smaller, uh, develop them faster with less redundancy, but accepting a, a certain degree of risks, the miniaturization of the electronics and, and um, uh, has, has allowed also for, for that integration and, and for those developments to, to happen faster and much more affordably. And I think that this has turned into a virtuous cycle that allows companies like ours to reduce the entire development cycle and delivery cycle to the customer uh, a lot, which at the same time allows faster interactions with the end users, which allows better innovation targeting commercial uh, needs rather than only technology development. So I would say that during this last decade, actually, the, the space sector has evolved from being like a cool and techy uh, industry into a much more user-oriented, useful and, and commercial industry. One of the, like, probably an overly simplistic way of thinking about the software industry, but a useful one, nevertheless, is that one of the reasons there's been an explosion in the number of software startups in the last you know, sort of 10, 15 years is the rise of things like Amazon Web Services, cloud computing, you know, kind of therefore cheap on-demand uh, payment for hosting, you know, turning that capital cost into an operating cost, things like open source software that allow people to reuse you know, commodity piece of software and focus their innovation on just the small thing um, where they're doing something new. Is there an equivalent for space? You know, kind of how much of the infrastructure for innovation already exists and um, how much do people have to reinvent the wheel every time? Um, maybe Rafi, you can comment on that and then Rohit, I'd love your view on that as well. Yeah, very quickly. I think that um, there is a window of opportunity right now, maybe over the next couple of years of actually deploying the infrastructure that will then and in parallel enable all of these applications and all of these refined services from, from the information that that, that that infrastructure either gathers or transmit. And here I am sure that Roy will be able to go into much more depth. To me, it feels like the space industry right now feels like when the computer industry transitioned from mainframe computers to PCs, and then something magical happened, which was that those pieces got connected and we got the internet, right? It feels like right now it's the moment that this infrastructure is being deployed. And then all of these data sets and all of these information capabilities are going to give uh, um, the opportunity of kind of a, a revolution such as the internet uh, happening. Uh, and I put the internet example. And if you go even a bit further back in history, you can think about the revolution that happened with the technology of the engine being invented and then the railways being put all around the, the, the world to be able to connect different places, right? So right now, I think the focus is in deploying that infrastructure and in parallel, building all of those services and those applications that can that can provide like uh, the, the value that the end users and that every single citizen requires. So when we look at 
effectively uh, and drop parallel to the space industry and what's happening now uh, to the renaissance that happened in the computer industry in the 80s. What we see is effectively back in the days, you see these big IBM mainframe computers and they effectively uh, became desktop computers. And what you saw was effectively breaking up of the whole silo into smaller supply chains and effectively big companies coming out of those individual components. Like for example, you had great companies coming out who are making keyboards and mouse and monitors and RAMs and CPUs and stuff. So your supply chain diversified, scaled up, and you had you, you were born the next generation of really good companies. And I see that's what's happening, going to be happening for the space industry as well. When you talk about space, it's it's really two applications. You're talking about how do you send signals around the planet and how do you look at the planet, right? That's what satellites usually do majority of the time. Um, and what you can effectively think of is that infrastructure, yes, you'll it, it's kind of like AWSization uh, of space. Uh, where each of these components effectively in making satellites, launching satellites, monitoring satellites will scale up. So effectively you'll have companies who may well become really amazing at scaling up satellite buses. Example, Open Cosmos. Uh, we have great companies who will become good at putting a lots and lots and lots of rockets and so democratizing access to space. Companies like us who effectively will do something in the communications industry, right? And so you will see more of this happening and it's not just like one or two platforms which will be created, but you will have every single vertical in the space industry, whether that's on the hardware side or the software side, you will see a creation of, an, of the next unicorn. One of the most important questions that any entrepreneur faces is where to base their company. There are a number of factors that go into that decision and they vary from startup to startup, but you might've assumed that Raf and Rohit would want to have based their companies in Silicon Valley. I wanted to know the decisions that led them to headquarter their companies outside the United States. In our case, it was a very conscious decision right at the beginning of, of the company um, because everyone was advising me originally actually to, to start the company in the US because it's where most of the capital, particularly for the space industry was. But then I soon realized that the US had a lot of, of the regulations that um, would would be a challenge or a difficulty for me to be able to, to deliver the full vision of, of of Open Cosmos, which is you know enabling solving global challenges and global mean everywhere in the world, not only uh, with satellites within the U.S. and um, in the U.S. actually a lot of the space technology is considered military technology, and that makes it difficult actually to provide this kind of service to other places in the world. Uh, in Europe, the mindset was a lot more different, collaborative, and particularly in the UK, you could still have access to the capital required to, to start um, such a capital-intensive company. At the same time, you had a government extremely supportive of entrepreneurship and of the space industry, truly understanding that it will be a pillar for, for the future economy. And uh, you had access to a lot of the talent at a fraction of the cost of, of, of the US uh, Silicon Valley talent to uh, be able to go through this early stage bootstrap journey that we, we had to go because of not having the same amount of capital available that there, there was in the US. So uh, when looking at everything and putting everything together, uh, we, we decided that it's much, much smarter to, to start here in, in Europe and in the UK and uh, to be able actually to then expand and, and grow our business uh, internationally. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I think um, one of our sort of mantras and theses at EF is the idea that it increasingly matters less where you start, um, not in the sense of that, that there aren't kind of crucial considerations about geography, but that it's possible to build a global winner from anywhere. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'd love to get your reflections on that, Rohit, because obviously like um, Singapore, again, like probably like the UK, um, to a global audience isn't the obvious place to build a company like this. But I actually think geography has turned out to be an advantage for you. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Good question. So uh, when we started, I think in the last four years, Singapore just has just been like an amazing place for us to build a company. And there's two or three like main reasons and there are many like secondary reasons to do that. The, the biggest ones have been the fact that the mission that we are on is to get people connected, right? And uh, if you, let's say, uh, draw a circle around Southeast Asia, there are more people living in that circle than outside that circle in the world. And so that basically means this is the area where we need to focus and where our maximum impact is. And so being in the center of that potential impact was extremely powerful for us and the team. Now, one of the things to realize is Singapore is one of the few first world countries in the whole region. So you can literally pull talent from anywhere in the world. Due to the low taxes and really high quality of life, uh, people don't see a big degradation when they move from any part of the world. And in fact, often see a better lifestyle here, right? So you can really attract top talent here and really get them to take home as much as they want. So you build your company away from distractions from the Silicon Valley, distractions from anything else, right? Um, where you have 50 or 100 base companies, but here you're pretty much the one. So you get media attraction, you get talent attraction, and you can really build your tech without any distractions. Now, um, Singapore has been really great in terms of also supporting uh, us quite a lot, uh, and that's seen in our investor base. Uh, what is happening in the last one, one and a half year is basically Southeast Asia in general uh, has been undergoing multiple repeated COVID outbreaks, uh, and there's multiple serious outbreaks that's coming out. And it has made it a little bit difficult for us to operate in such an environment. And that kind of opens up now the U.S. market for us, right, where they have been able to tackle the, the COVID growth very well, getting most of the population vaccinated, the whole countries open up. There's FCC grants which are pushing broadband adoption within the country. Uh, so the time is ripe for us to take all these successes and winnings from Asia and then replicate that across the U.S. Uh, our foot will uh, and our headquarters will still pretty much be in in Singapore, uh, and we see uh, most of the impact happening in this part of the region. Uh, but U.S. is coming rapidly up on our sites in the next couple of months to years. We've talked about the fact that privatized space travel is changing the industry. And one of the ideas that potentially comes along with that is the idea that space is a trophy hobby for billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. I suspected that Raf and Rohit might have another perspective. So I wanted to know, what is it really like being the CEO of a company in the space industry? Uh, I don't see Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson as, as just people that, that got rich and that's it. They are actually the most brilliant entrepreneur that there has been over, over the last years, the last yeah. decades. And uh, actually, I think that the fact that they are becoming CEOs of space companies, it's proving that those are... The companies that are going to bring the new wave, just as they drove the one in, in, uh, in, in the digital industry and and through the internet, right? So, uh, the work of a CEO in a space uh, uh, industry, uh, 
in my case, as a, as a startup, actually, I work very, very close with the team, understanding how, for instance, each one of the satellites that we are deploying is working, um, the pipeline and the development of all of the commercial activities with our customers. And then I focus a lot of my time, particularly on making sure that we bring more and more talented people uh, to the team, making sure that we have the right relationships with with the customers and the, the people within government that drive some of, some of the policies that can impact uh, our growth. And uh, just making sure that, that I'm working very close with not only my team, but also the, the, the key players and stakeholders that, that can support the company going forward. Both my guests today are deeply immersed in and care so much about the technology that their companies are building. But of course, today, as their organizations scale, their role changed. I asked them how that felt as their companies have grown and whether they still get to be hands-on in the way that they used to. You're right. I'm an aerospace engineer and I specialize in space technology. So I do have the knowledge actually on, on how to design these satellites, build them and so on. And for the first one, actually, we were all working on it and the design uh, c- comes from there, right? But as you grow the company and as, as, as you scale, you need to bring people that are much better than yourself at, at doing each one of those activities. And in my case, I was extremely fortunate that extremely early in our journey, I had a ledge joining, for instance, uh, who um, you know had already been managing big projects at the European Space Agency in collaboration with the with uh, multiple agencies for for lunar projects, and brought a lot of knowledge on on how to go through these processes. Or Jordi, for instance, that that uh, started you know working in depth at all the system engineering activities that were related to the satellite. Or Han, that I mentioned earlier, that not right. necessarily had like a uh, a space background, but his his deep knowledge about the technology and how to manufacture with shorter development cycles and so on was absolutely critical, and it still is today, right? So you build that team of people that are much better than you are, whether it is in technology or it's in sales or it's in any of the critical areas for the growth of the company, and you just try to keep them all aligned with the right direction uh, to achieve our vision improving on a daily basis and making sure that there are not resources for that growth not to not to be hampered yeah i think i think it's sort of it is amazing this point um in a, in a sense it's very intuitive but i think often when people are at the start it's sort of hard to grasp this idea that a ceo's role is to hire people who are better than you and you know i think sometimes um you know i've had to obviously do the same thing at entrepreneur first and sometimes it's very um uh, it's easy to get imposter syndrome when you when you do that. That you know that you you're no longer the expert in the room in relative terms, even if, uh, as in your case, you actually do have a lot of the skills. But um, I do think that's key to to scaling. Rohit, maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience in that respect. Sort of, you, you've obviously built a pretty compelling tech team at, um, at Transastia. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think this is uh, this was very early early days when we were about to hire the first person. Um, Dinesh and I sat down and we just wrote down a few rules and uh, on what kind of people we would hire. And uh, there was this, uh, so back when I was banking and you were generally banking and consulting uh, the top ones at least. I mean, it's just absolute cream of the crop, right? Like they had the best of the best uh, most of the time. And one of the things, rules that I had learned from my manager who hired me into the team was um, effectively that at some point in life, uh, 
this rule doesn't apply to every single hire, obviously, but like for most of your key hires, uh, if the, the final ask you should ask is basically, if at some point of time tables are reversed, will I be happy to work under this person? Uh, and that's that's been a great filter we have generally applied uh, across the organization. And that gives you a great uh, advantage to kind of uh, hire really, really good people. Just on that, Rohit, interestingly, that's one of the heuristics we often use at EF when thinking about founders. Like, How do you build right, intuition right. about what great founders look like? Well, one fairly straightforward one is like, these people are going to yeah. have to hire great people. So would, yeah. would you work for them? I, I mean, it's incredibly tough though, right? Like, because I mean, the, the, the kind of people that you're bringing into the cohort, uh, I mean, these are, the, we are nerds, right? Uh, and, and generally we became nerds by thinking that we are good at something. Uh, so it, it's kind of contrary to hire people who you have to accept that are actually are, are fucking amazing, right? They're really, really good. In the early days, I think it's very important for a deep tech company, at least like, uh, that it, both are extremely excited about the tech. And uh, obviously, Dinesh had much, much, much deeper. He was the PhD in the relationship. Uh, but in the very early days, we would spend very equal amounts of time digging really deep into um, different subsystems like electronics, modulation coding, control loop algorithms, etc. But over time, it becomes very important to uh, to have very deep focus on strategy and execution separately. Um, and that's kind of like the key role for the CTO within the organization, right? Like they really drive the internal execution for product and, and, um, and making sure that tech really gets built at the quality that we need to deliver. Um, both of us have had a, a very, very good BS meter and, and we think really first principles and that's very key to get, get right in a co-founder relationship. Uh, over the last couple of months to years, uh, my whole focus has shifted to two or three kind of key areas. Number one, absolutely what Raf said is my goal is to make sure we absolutely hire the best of the best, right? Acting as the one-stop last filter in terms of hiring is very, very key. On top of that, as the CEO, you become the natural, your, your job becomes to make sure that the right product is being built and the right resources are being put on that. Uh, and at the end of the day, the only question that you can ask from your organization is how can you help and sometimes the answer comes back as oh we need you to think about the next product or we need you to do the fundraising or we need you to make sure um, something else is not going wrong or we need to think about the new uh, industry or the new geography that we are entering in so basically it just boils down to how can you help my final question for raf and rohit about being a ceo was about how they think about ambition being ambitious is a quality we see a lot at EF, and it's one that's definitely reflected in these two. I asked Raf where he wants Open Cosmos to be in 10 years' time. So I, I see a company that is um, producing a very diverse range of data sets coming from a diverse range of satellites in orbit and powering actually a very actionable information for governments, for companies in diverse sectors to be able to drive much more effective and uh, good decisions. And I think that we are on the path of starting to deploy of this infrastructure already. So I don't, it's not something that I see in, uh, just happening after five years or after 10 years. It's something that I see progressively uh, being deployed as, as we keep deploying these satellites. On the Entrepreneur First podcast, we like to ask all of our guests the same final questions each week to try and get to the bottom of what makes an entrepreneur. First one is, what do you think you would be doing uh, if you weren't building this company? 
um, what either what startup do you think you'd be building or, or, or what else would you be doing? Uh, this is a really I, tough one. <laughs> I can feel that first because it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I did think about a few other areas. So it's less about specific uh, technologies or ideas, but more about general feeling. Um, so there are, there are a few big open uh, problems in nature. Uh, and when we started Translester at that point, I talked to Ganesh about this, uh, certain areas which still excite me and I definitely want to do something. Um, one, number one is tied with energy. Um, energy is, is kind of like the bedrock for every single industry out there, every single economy out there. Uh, and for the longest periods of time, most of our storage and generation mechanisms have been tied to uh, classical mechanics rather than quantum mechanics. Uh, and like uh, nanotechnology, where there's lots of space down there, there's lots of energies down there as well. Um, so it's uh, that's a major area where there are some plans we have in the, uh, I would say, the 50-year timeline for Transcelestial. Uh, yes, we have 50-year timeline for Transcelestial, where we, we kind of focus away from comms and, and start looking into some energies. But energy stuff, but that that's one area. Uh, the other area where I'm personally very, very interested in is the area of CRISPR and Cas9. Um, uh, one of the big challenges has been with, uh, and, and you're starting to see mRNA and the role for um, uh, DNA-based editing techniques uh, becoming more and more prominent. And I think there needs to be a further democratization of that area. Um, I don't know whether I can help there, but that's definitely something that I would have gotten into if, if it was not translational. In, in my case, I've, I've, I've never approached actually um, starting up Open Cosmos as just another idea. Um, it's not like I have idea one, idea two, idea three. Uh, it, it's more like this is a big problem that I really, really care about, uh, providing this data to all of, all of the people so, so we can so, solve these problems. And I just happen to have uh, the knowledge about how to deploy the key technology to make that happen. So the company is a vehicle for, for that problem to be solved and everyone that is supporting us in that journey to get a reward out of it, right? So so that's why probably if, if, if I wasn't doing Open Cosmos, I would be doing Open Cosmos in another way to solve that problem. You can see from their answers that entrepreneurship is applied problem solving. That's a core motivation for so many of the founders that we work with. As a final question, I asked them what advice they'd have for someone who wants to take the leap into entrepreneurship. Well, mine is, is uh, it's really clear. Um, start and go fast. This, this is the advice that I would give. And uh, starting is just as important as going fast. Many people are waiting for that idea or for that co-founder to come through. And actually, I think that just owning your future and saying, I'm going to start, I'm going to engage customers, I'm going to get to know and learn about the problem much faster. Getting that first step, you already have a big part of the journey of entrepreneurship forward if you take that step. And then once you are on the road, just go fast because you need to <laughs> use your resources very effectively. You need to beat competition and you need to make sure that you keep improving for your customers. Fantastic. Rahit? Well, I mean, three things. A lot of people kind of show up or uh, talk to you on LinkedIn and stuff. They're like, oh, like what gives some ideas about entrepreneurship? My usual first response to everyone is don't be an entrepreneur. Uh, <laughs> And, and the reason is quite simple. Like if you are not uh, excited by changing the status quo, it will just drown you completely, right? Like you have, it will just drown you absolutely. Um, so that, that's my usual one. But like uh, in all fairness, I think two, two things, right? So number one, I think a lot of people are worried 
when they start with ideas that like, oh, is this idea going to, am I going to be passionate about this in the long term? Or am I going to get bored six months down the line and then I will lose my opportunity to join a big job or, or a big role in some place? Uh, the reality is the more time you spend with an idea, um, the more passionate you grow about it. And, and, and that's, that's the reality, right? Like you, you just get like so much more invested and you understand you become a subject matter expert and have huge uh, <laughs> and have just, just huge amounts of like uh, doubts on yourself. But then you just become massively passionate about it. The, the second thing is, uh, which majority of the people are worried about is like, okay, I have an idea. Uh, I know what to do. How do I go about getting funding? And the reality is that like to every idea that's out there, there's someone out there who will fund it. You just have to just wade through all the rejections and stuff and, and, and wait until that person walks across. I think it's, you know, it's, it's so funny so, uh, you should say that, um, uh, Rohit, because often I'm asked, uh, you know, what advice I have for um, for aspiring founders and people are very surprised to hear that my first advice is usually most people shouldn't. Um, and I think that's really important. Like, entrepreneurship really isn't for everyone. I think um, <laughs> it does require the sort of, as both of you have described, that kind of um, extraordinary uh, resilience, determination, drive, and you know, I suppose sort of like to tie the two pieces of advice that you that you gave the two of you together. Um, it really, it really resonates. Like, probably only do it if you really, really feel you must, and if you're gonna, then as, as Raz says, just get started. Uh, no excuses. Uh, just go for it. you enjoyed my conversation with Raphael and Rohit. They're two fascinating characters that for me really embody many of the things that we look for in potential founders at EF. Raf and Rohit each have remarkable companies in a really exciting stage of their development and I can't wait to see what they do next. Make sure to join me again next time for a very special episode. I'll be speaking to Alex Daliak and Reid Hoffman about what it takes to build a billion dollar company. Alex is co-founder and CEO of Tractable, which recently became EF's first unicorn. And of course, Reid Hoffman is co-founder of LinkedIn, partner at Greylock, and one of EF's biggest investors and board members. If you like the show and you want to hear more episodes like this one, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen. While you're there, we'd love to hear your feedback. Ratings and reviews help us make these shows even better and also help more people like you find out about us. Finally, a big thank you to CoFruition for consulting on and producing this podcast. We look forward to seeing you again next time.